0: Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Welcome to Coffees.me podcast. Today I'm here again with Marcus Young from Boot Coffee Campus. Hello. Did you see what it just, did you see what did I do? No. Last time I was talking about Boot Lab. That's how I call Boot Coffee Campus. That's so funny. That's great. You you didn't even notice? No, I didn't even notice. Oh, good. All
1: right. No problem. Everybody knows what we're talking about. Do they? I probably, I don't know, maybe not.
0: Wow. do we want to talk about Boot Coffee Campus? Sure. Go for it.
1: Boot Coffee Campus. We're an education and training center. We're a consulting company. We see maybe 300 students a year, mainly entrepreneurs, coming for courses and roasting, sensory skills, even some barista courses, um, you know, often from the standpoint of people looking to be more profitable and prove their roasting their quality control, their management of their barista teams and staffs. It's really rewarding work for me because I get to see everybody from dreamers that are just planning their business to people that are running successful businesses and thinking about ways to make them even more successful.
0: And I just love to come here because uh, you guys are awesome and I also love to roast my coffee here.
1: Yeah, thanks. We're glad to have you here. It's <laughs> awesome to have you around because we have a, we have a nice time when we're together and um, yeah, we, you bring a nice vitality to the lab as well.
0: Cool. Speaking of nice time, so let's pull some of this stuff here. Yeah. Ah, so, perfect. So as you remember, every episode we have some wine and I called it last time natural wine without explaining what natural wine is. Uh, let's talk first about what natural wine is, why is it good, and uh, then we can talk what we drink.
1: Perfect. Well, cheers first. Yeah, cheers. We'll taste to see if it's good.
0: Yeah. Mm. I approve.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. It's interesting. I love the, the layers in the nose. Um Full transparency, we opened this bottle with some students who were here for a course. So it's been opened, breathing, kind of coming into its own now for maybe an hour. When we first opened it, it had this amazing um, hint of, I called it parmesan cheese rind. Yeah. Um, Not overpowering, just kind of gave it like a richness, a complexity, a little barnyardiness. Mm -hmm. Um, That's gone now.
0: But it was not really... Bothering ardiness because sometimes wine can go all the way and you get these... Um,
1: 100%. Not a yeah. defect, not no. not over the top by any means. And it it's just come into its own, and it's just an incredibly clean. I love the honey sweetness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is what, a Viognier? Yeah. So some of the character that I would expect from that, like a really nice kind of silky, syrupy body, that mm-hmm. honey sweetness, but enough acid, enough kind of depth to to bring it alive, kind of melons and, yeah, it's lovely.
0: It's very perfumy. So, okay, we started to talk about this wine, so let's continue. Um, so this wine is um, by a buddy of mine, Noel Diaz, and he actually uh, has a brand called Purity Wine, and he's a uh, pretty well-known in the natural wine world, I would say in California or maybe in the world. And... Uh, you know, I call this person a crazy person. I like crazy people because he, I mean, just talk to, talking to him is fun. He has all these, he loves to talk about wine and he all these crazy ideas, which, you know, for me are normal as European. We we love these kind of natural uh, things. But for people in Napa or Sonoma, maybe they would not like this too much. This is very much uh, feral wine, I would say, right? 100%. Yeah. And Noel does a lot of different wines. So if you guys want to check him out, uh, Purity Wine, he's on Instagram or his website. He doesn't like websites. So his website is not really updated.
1: Just find him on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. He's got a cool Instagram feed for sure.
0: Yeah, and this one is from Rough and Ready. And maybe you guys remember last week uh, we were drinking uh, Viognier Petnat, which is a sparkling wine made a in sorry, uh, ancient way. And um, that's the same grape because Noel is my sensor when it comes to making wine. So I'm very happy to kind of pitch him, but let's go back to what's natural wine. And, you know, I want to talk about wines because wine industry is very much kind of influencing uh, the coffee industry, what's happening right now. And And I think
1: think coffee has long looked at wine, right? right? Everybody has probably taken, that listens to this, some sort of a coffee 101, where the instructor makes some parallels to wine, you know, for consumers, often making parallels to wine tasting and coffee tasting—that's kind of their first aha moment. So, yeah. So I think I think it's apt. Perhaps it's problematic, but I think you're right. It, it kind of goes both ways.
0: Yeah, I think the philosophically, I love the natural world. So, what is natural wine for you? There's no real definition. I have to say from Get, because there's no like definition. Natural wine is A, B, C. It, I think everybody makes it own. So, what is natural wine for you?
1: yeah I think, um for me, natural wine is is a wine that, in some ways, like radically expresses terroir. Um I love the idea of terroir. I love the way that an apple tastes that I've plucked from a tree in my own yard, mm-hmm. um much more than an apple from a large commercial orchard. Um, and you know, natural wine kind of does that for me. I'm tasting not just the grapes from that land but the yeasts and the microbiome and everything that that is with those grapes where it was grown of course it might be produced in a winery and a warehouse in oakland somewhere mm-hmm. but you know to me that that might taste much more you know authentic mm-hmm. than those same grapes from that same vineyard that were produced maybe in a really I don't know, technified, for lack of a better word, way, you know, even, you know, at a winery at the vineyard. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a lack of technification in some ways, no less sophisticated, no less intentional, no less difficult. But I I feel like I taste the grapes, I taste the land.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the technification was a great uh, way Mm -hmm. to, like, put the opposite of natural wines when you know we learned basically create flavors in a wine industry and that's what i kind of try to avoid because what i want is exactly terroir so i want a microbiome to create the flavors and you know i i messed up and some of my wine is it sucks it's horrible and i know what did i do wrong so maybe next year i'll fix that but some of my wine is awesome and mm-hmm. that complexity will not you will not achieve it uh with uh, industrial wine, for me, it's like when I compare the natural wine to the industrial world wine, it's something like Starbucks versus, uh, let's say, Turbay Roastery. Starbucks creates flavors; they know what their customers want. And I'm not saying one is better than another; I'm just saying what it is. You know, so Starbucks creates these dark roasts; they know that people will go for this, and they create it. While the third wave coffee scene is looking for these individual flavors; they want the florals, maybe they want kind of like interesting you know, uh, fruitiness or something. They're always looking for these different coffees.
1: Yeah, it's a coffee that expresses the character of the coffee buyer, the character of the roast master, the character of the barista, right? There's like a soul Mm -hmm. behind it. It's not trying to be all things to all people. It's happy to be what it is, even if that limits its market. I think it's trusting that we're not crazy. If I like the taste of something, there's probably other people behind me that will like it as well.
0: Yeah, you need, but you need a definite open mind to taste a third wave coffee. So do you uh, need open mind when you uh, taste and enjoy natural wines? Because they are different. They are definitely different. 100%. Yeah. So the microbiome, what you talked about is for me also the same as for you, that it's, it's a representation of a terroir. And I don't know how much you know about, how much you guys know about making wine, but nowadays what's happening in most of the wineries is that they kill all the natural yeast and bacteria with sulfites and they then pitch so-called noble yeast. So they get certain flavor profile they want. Uh, the natural world shun on this, what we like to do is basically let the nature take course. So the wild yeast, uh, yeasts, plural, uh, including the wild bacteria will basically f- feed on those sugars in, 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 in the in a, in a must, and they create this crazy complexity. And, the, for example, the barnyardiness we talked about is a, caused by a, a, a yeast called bretomyces, which in a professional wine world, in an industrial wine world, it's like they hate it. I mean, they will kill it. I, they put, probably put Lysol in the, in the <laughs> wine or something to kill it. In a small quantities, it creates this very interesting umami for me. In France, actually, there's places where they inoculate their barrels with a little bit of bretomyces because they want it there. Mm-hmm. So, again, open mind. Can be kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, um, oh, it's a it's a big world. Yeah, and, yeah, and it, it was interesting. Before we opened this wine, we had a wine that a student brought to us, a very expensive, mm-hmm. but also I think very kind of typical Napa Cabernet. Um, and we tasted it, and it just tasted like the process, right? It mm-hmm. tasted oaky, tanniny you had to like peel away these layers to get into the grape. Right. Um, And I don't know that it would have tasted very different if it had been a grape from a different vineyard produced by the same winemaker.
0: I think, you know, it also had very high alcohol content. So yeah, it was what,
1: 16%? Yes, something. Something
0: like, I think 14 something. Uh, and, you know, I really want to taste the grape in, in the wine. So for me, if you barrel it in a barrack, uh, barrack is a kind of a toasted barrels, it just loses its character. And then you have to kind of like, as you said, peel it off. And because of the higher alcohol level, I could not even taste the grape anymore.
1: Yeah. And plus I might want to have a few glasses and not
0: just be on the floor. Right. Sure. <laughs> Actually, we had this uh, like, ha- like a little bit taste, and I only felt, felt it in my head. Then we switched to this one. I was like, yeah, I can drink this. I mean, yeah, no problem. almost the whole bottle is gone. And- Yeah.
1: And yeah, I mean, and to bring it a little bit back to coffee, it it does kind of remind me, you know, when I tasted that, the first thing that came to my mind, because here we are in a beautiful coffee lab and training center. And we've been talking about coffee with these students all week in a sensory tasting class. Um, When I first tasted it, I thought, wow, this reminds me of those coffees that I taste that are these fermentation experiments, these crazy anaerobic slow dry coffees that just taste like the process and i feel like i've lost all the nuance of the bean Mm -hmm. and you know props to my friend like wilford at alita that he's got a great market for those um but those big wines remind me of those big coffees Mm -hmm. and i just know that me and my tastes i always prefer things with the volume turned way down and the complexity kind of revealing itself more naturally
0: right I, I totally agree in everything by the way i yep. prefer in wine cheese everything i just want to be surprised not unpleasantly because obviously you can have something bad but uh yeah okay so again Viognier from rough and ready uh is the town where this was grown it's a uh, sierra foothills california and purity wines is the uh donator of this wine because he gave it to us
1: yeah thank you Noel. And, and you know so that's a wrap for the wine is me podcast <laughs> i'm joking of course
0: <laughs> no as we said that you know if you have an interesting wine just let us know it doesn't have to be natural i mean we are open-minded to anything but it has to be interesting right
1: yeah 100 so. percent. you know my favorite hobby is and i think my wife even more so is going to grocery outlet and finding what great wines or hidden gyms there that's a Discount grocery store in California where you'll find thirty-dollar bottles for six dollars.
0: <laughs> I, I okay. here is my technified
1: uh, wines for sure.
0: Yeah, he's my techni- techni- technified wine uh, secret place is Trader Joe's. They have some very nice French stuff there, and if you want to spend no more than six or seven bucks, some of the stuff is pretty awesome. Like yeah. for pizza, what I make, you know, we had there was this one French wine. It was uh, GSM. So it's Grenache, Syrah, and Mourvedre. It's like GSM is kind of like a blend. Famous. Yeah. And it was just working so well with it. Nothing to do with natural wine, probably full of sulfite. And yet, I loved it because it was interesting. and It just worked.
1: 100%. So, yeah. All
0: right. Let's talk about coffee because people are like, oh, what? Let's stop this wine stuff. All right. So we have a few questions from you. Thank you for all the questions you guys sent us. And today we, you know, picked some which are related to coffee roasting.
1: Yeah, I think it's fantastic. We um, It was so cool. Thanks, Valerian, for opening up um, the discussion with listeners and asking what questions they had, because we have some great great ones here. I don't know if you have a preference where we want to start. I'll let Let's you...
0: start with the easy one. Let's start I... with the caffeine.
1: Oh, were any of them easy? I, in some ways, I think caffeine, I, I think it's an easy answer, but it's a complicated explanation. You
0: read it. You're... English is better than mine.
1: Okay. I'm just lazy. So my question, I've come to believe, but never actually tested, that darker roasted coffee has less caffeine. But I've also read that Starbucks is teaching employees that this is a myth. Can you settle this for me?
0: It's from Darren Burke uh, from Don Pablo Coffee. And he sent us also his YouTube ad. Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. You guys can check it out.
1: Yeah. So Darren, thanks for the question, because it's 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 an important one. I think when people, especially all of our customers, are asking about caffeine levels when they're seeking lower caffeine coffees, or maybe even higher caffeine coffees, but especially with lower caffeine, we have to get this right. People are looking to limit their caffeine intake often for health reasons, for pregnancy. There's a physical reason mm-hmm. behind that. So We can't be sending our our customers down a dangerous path. Um, The easy answer is that roast level in caffeine doesn't matter. Um, The impact on the caffeine level in coffee is changed very little by roasting. You definitely don't roast caffeine out of coffee. Um, So that idea of darker roasted coffee having less caffeine, that's wholly not true. But if you think about as you roast darker, what's happening? You're burning away more volatiles. Any roasters that are listening know that the typical weight loss of a light roasted or a medium roasted coffee might be 12 to 15%. As you roast darker into second crack, you might even see a 20% weight loss. You're losing all kinds of organic materials that way. Probably not caffeine. So when we talk about caffeine content, we'll talk about caffeine on a dry weight basis. That's what's the amount of caffeine in basically the roasted and ground, but not brewed coffee. On a dry weight basis, it doesn't change much. But what does change is when you start thinking about brewing coffee. And now most cafes, some consumers, you know, we're brewing coffee based on weight. We're weighing out our beans. We're brewing, you know, 30 grams of coffee, and we're producing 450 milliliters of coffee out. And now we all know, because of the weight loss difference from lighter roasted to darker roasted coffees, we're actually using more coffee beans in a dark roasted, in a a brew of a dark roasted coffee. So there is the potential for more caffeine because we have more beans. Um, What does that actually mean when we brew the coffee? The truth of this entire answer, the secret of it is that you impact the caffeine level by how you brew the coffee much more than by what you're doing in the roaster. So anything that would lead to over-extracting or to more full extraction yields of your coffee, one of those compounds that's that's being extracted is caffeine. So hotter water, longer brew time, finer grind, yada, 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 you get more caffeine in the cup.
0: Honestly, I, you know, this is one of the most common questions uh, of all my Slovak brand, our customers, and I I always hate it because, you know, I would, like, because there's no, like, they ask me, like, how much coffee is, how much caffeine is there in a brewed coffee versus espresso? It's like, well, where is that coffee coming from? As we talked about terroir, you know, different varieties, different places, you know, will, different ripeness levels you know, will influence the final caffeine more than or the roast. Yeah,
1: we know Robusta, of course, right. has, you know, is a different species, maybe twice the caffeine of Arabica.
0: That said... Lorena
1: that's, is low caffeine.
0: That said, I saw one um, kind of like a big test. It's, it's, a, it's a document which you, I found on Google Books, and it from like, I think it was 60s, and they were measuring caffeine. There was a Robusta which was very close, was so low in caffeine, which is very close to the high caffeine Arabica. So you might, it's like, again, like generally it's true, but there might be some uh, varieties or some places, origins where it's kind of closer. And by the way, just, to you know, caffeine is not there for our human happiness, but it's a pesticide, natural pesticide. Or an herbicide. Herb- herbicide? I didn't hear this. I mean, I think, isn't that against other bugs?
1: Yeah. And also it's an herbicide against other...
0: Plants, yes, I yeah, I've, I've
1: heard cool. it. I don't remember who said this, um, but um, I love to like read coffee science papers and attend coffee science conferences. And and at one pl- point I did hear mm-hmm. a coffee scientist talking about how you know, coffee is an herbicide. It keeps like weeds and those kinds of plants that would be competing for resources with the coffee at bay. And one of the reasons that coffee yields decrease and why you need to rejuvenate coffee after say 15 years is because the soil actually becomes slightly autotoxic to the coffee plant itself wow so i wish that i knew who said that if anybody knows or has heard that or disagrees with that please chime in because i don't want to you know purport wrong information and i want to purport information that i have information to back up unfortunately i don't have that for that so
0: Speaking of fun facts, there is one bug. I should put it in in the quiz we have on coffeecourses.com. There's one bug which really enjoys caffeine. Is you know, despite the fact that it's a a pesticide. You know who is that? Who's that? Bees. Bees? Bees love caffeine. And that's why they, they basically pollinate it. That's what I heard. Yeah, cool. Nobody asking them though. They shouldn't mind them for the podcast then.
1: <laughs> cool. So yeah, but the caffeine question, it's a complicated one. Like I said, I think it's important to get right. If I was just working a cafe, a customer asked, which coffee should I buy to limit my caffeine content? The answer is, it really doesn't matter. Assuming that you're selling Arabica coffee only and that it's impacted more by how you brew it. Don't even go down the path of making recommendations that's sort of like making medical advice
0: yeah i totally agree all right next question is uh, from robert watson do you want to read it
1: i'm happy to so um we have camellia coffee roasters out of sacramento and um robert wanted to know about our thoughts on pre-blending coffee before we roast um so cool to hear from you, Robert, kind of our neighbor here. We're in San Rafael, so we're about, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half away from Sacramento. But it's a great question. You know, what when you're setting out to make a coffee blend, you have a few options. You can blend all of the green coffee together in the roaster, roast it all at once, or you can blend it after you have roasted. So roast each component individually, then handle the blending afterwards. I'm curious. You have coffee companies, Valerian. How do you handle blending?
0: Okay, so um, I. Okay, so with Anish coffee, it's a little bit easy because all the coffees are approximately the same density. They're all similarly. So I, I, if I want to do a blend, I can do a. Uh, which is sometimes we do. We do a, a, a pre-blend, meaning that before we roast. Uh, But here's a funny story. The very first blend I did was for my wedding with Katie, with my lovely wife. Ah, Nice. And there were like 12 different coffees. (laughs) I know.
1: Those of you who operate businesses, I think most of you do. Can you imagine managing that in your your production day?
0: That was a wedding blend. And boy, (laughs) I had no clue what I was doing. Anyhow, the point is that I actually uh, did uh, a pre-blend. And because I did pre band and there was some, you know, Sondra Natural Brazils, there, I remember there was Uganda Bugisu, there was some Ethiopians, so they roasted very differently. So there were different colors in a final coffee. Hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, what's this all about? You know, what did I do here? I did not know anything about roasting then, right? So I, w- I actually called it the Yin Yang blend. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. I have to <laughs> say that people loved it, but you know, they call it the Yin Yang. And people, I mean, it was freshly roasted coffee, you know. Yeah. In 2001 in Slovakia, which... How you
1: know, bad could it be, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it would be pretty delicious. Yeah, but
0: uh, I don't think... With Green Plantation, we don't do really... We do one blend, and we do, oh, green, green Plantation, my Slovak brand, we use Brazil and Colombia for our basic barista, and we post-blend it, okay. because they roast very different.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the blending question, I'm glad that this was asked, um, we're... It feels like we're kind of in a world these days where single origin gets all the attention. But blends are so important. They're important just from a bottom line standpoint. I see so many roasters that come through here. I've had my roasting companies. Guess what the best seller is? For 90% of those companies, it's a blend. Mm -hmm. So getting it right is important. And yeah, I think the decision to pre-roast or post-roast blend comes from a couple of operational realities in your business. And then there's the flavor standpoint. You know The operational piece, because that's the easier one to ask or to answer, I'll start there, is where do you have excess capacity? If you're right at the capacity for your roasting machine, you're probably going to blend post-roast. You're going to roast those components. You're going to take that additional production time to blend them and then go on with packaging and whatnot. However, if you have excess roasting capacity, maybe it makes sense to blend all of those green coffees together and roast them together and then get onto production. It basically saves a production step. I know that's not the sexy answer. It's not the answer about flavor and profiles and solubility and all of that, but it's a very realistic reality, and I'm incredibly pragmatic about these things. Um, I, too, have always post-roast blended for my companies, I'm a little bit of a control freak. I don't like to leave too many things to this like magic synergy that might happen. Um, And, you know, for me, my goal has always been with the blend. If I can take a single origin coffee, roast it in a way that's delicious, and I can sell that coffee as a single origin coffee, and I can use some of that coffee as part of a blend, that's like a win win, right? Um, But that's also been because I've often been a little bit compromised on roasting capacity. So I kind of roast batches or whatever I can and blend them afterwards. And I do think it creates an awesome product. The proponents of pre-roast blending and some of my very favorite coffee blends, um, Equator Blend, I think is is an example of a a pre-roast blend. They're incredible. They are so complex, so nuanced, so balanced. And I'm certain that it comes from something that's happening in the roaster, some way that heat transfer the conductivity from coffee bean to coffee bean, the fact that one bean is going to roast slightly differently than another bean based on density, moisture content, bean size. It's just creating some secret mojo in the roasting machine. Would you
0: shy away from a yin-yang blend? Somebody decides that oh, you know, I want to highlight acidity with a lighter roast and want to do, let's say, body with a darker or medium roast. Would you shy away from that?
1: No, not at all. I, one, mm-hmm. of, one of my favorite blends that I ever had, for, um, for a number of years, I worked for Batdorf & Bronson, a coffee roaster in Olympia, Washington, and Atlanta, Georgia. And we had a blend at that time. It was called Omar's. I think now it's called Whirling Dervish. Of our, it was an homage to Yemen Mm -hmm. and to the birthplace of coffee. Um, That was a blend of one single origin coffee roasted two different ways. Kind of a yin yang Mm -hmm. blend, different than the way you described it. (laughs) But, um, you know, we could kind of maximize the roast. We could have kind of what, you know, most might think of as a French roast, others kind of more of a medium roast. That coffee shined with that blend, it tasted unlike. Either component on its own, it was incredible. His espresso it was like black cherries and cola, and so I think it's a cool technique. Um, Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and and to Valerian's point about you know considering the bean size, the density, all of those issues that he's able to get away with unleashed coffee. Um, I wonder how many roasters really think about that when they set off to do pre-roast blends. Um, But I know that also in post-roast blending, people have thought about this. It's when you're building a blend for espresso or filter, whatever the purpose is. Um, You know, there's definitely roasters that I respect a lot, roasters and consultants and trainers that talk a lot about solubility of individual blend components. And do you have components with a similar solubility?
0: Oh, wow. Which That's the next level.
1: A dense way to think about wow. it, right? So like preparing your cupping, um, some sort of a standard approach to brewing. It could be filter brewed. It could be cupped and then poured through a filter, checking the solubility of all your components and making sure they're kind of aligned. That's like taking the control freak to a level that even I'm not comfortable with um, for me personally. Props to you if you do that. Um, but I do think there's something beautiful to be said about an agricultural product like coffee that... In some ways, we're a little bit at the mercy of Mother Nature. And if you're pre-roast blending and the coffee's roast in a different way and create something magic that you never could have anticipated,
0: go for it. Natural wine, right?
1: Exactly. (laughs) Same thing. If you're post-roast blending and you're not measuring the solubility of individual components and they're extracting at slightly different rates and maybe one component is contributing higher acidity and sort of under extracted flavors and other components, maybe slightly more over extracted. If at the end of the day, you're creating something you love, go for it. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, think about the business reality and the operational reality of how you're going to accomplish that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very important point that you have to stand by a product. And if you are proud what you put out there, that's cool. Yeah. Because if everybody will do the same, the it would be boring Everybody we would do Starbucks because that sells the best, right? So, all right, moving on, uh, we have a question by, okay, Bill McCarran. How would you read that?
1: Bill McCrushin, I'm not sure. Sorry, Bill, if we've butchered your name, but your question is a good one, um, which is, are there significant differences in roasting on an LPG-fired versus natural gas-fired roaster? all else being equal. Um, Yeah, this is something that I think a lot of us have faced. I actually have faced it when I used to bring roasters to Coffee Roasters Guild retreat. Here in our lab, we're on natural gas. All the roasters are outfitted and configured to run on natural gas. We show up to Roasters Guild. We have a big propane tank that we're all sharing. So it's not as simple as just plugging in propane propane and natural gas have very different heat characteristics. So it's working with your roaster manufacturer to ensure that you have the correct burners for the gas type. You'll have to change your burner. And there also is likely some internal valving that you will have to change. I think on, we have a number of Gieson roasters here. And on the Giesons, I think that the natural gas is looking for something like seven water column inches of gas pressure entering the roaster, propane, we would almost double that. But with a different burner, perhaps even different internal valving. But I think if you get your machine set up correctly, have it correctly calibrated for the type of gas you're using, it shouldn't make much of a difference.
0: Well, but I'll put another thing into equation, and that's Eastern Europe, where we use propane butane, and actually some places they use butane to burn. And those are a, very different.
1: Right? It does. And this was an issue that I ran into when we started Question Coffee in Rwanda,
0: mm-hmm.
1: also a country of nothing but um, tanks of liquid propane gas. Different times of the year, different days when we would get propane delivered, the butane content would be very, very different in
0: the in the bottle. So in, in Slovakia, we use uh, propane butane when you buy a bottle that's a that, that's a get-go thing
1: same thing here in the us when you buy liquid propane gas there's always some butane as well, a I component of that. it and that butane content will change with seasonality
0: but you can buy pure propane you just have to ask for it and that's what we did now we roast natural gas but before we roasted on mm. pb now we uh roast on pure propane because the heat i think it, it gives you much more heat it's much more efficient and it's not stinky
1: yeah, butane often will have an orange flame and mm-hmm. a lot of black smoke coming off of it. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, when, when we first started in Rwanda, I really was curious in investigating a Dietrich roaster because of the IR burner. I thought that <laughs> it was just hypothetical. I never tested it, but I thought that that might be a way to overcome it. It was a challenge. Yeah. No. Uh,
0: but, you know, we actually destroyed our of fresco roaster this way because hmm. uh, we had a PB, propane butane, put into it and it should run only on propane. So if you are from Eastern Europe, pay attention.
1: Or East Africa or, or Latin America or much of the world where you might not have plumbed plumb gas. And, and Bill, I hope that that answers your question. I would talk to the manufacturer of your roaster and find out what they recommend. If you're looking at buying a roaster, just spec it for whichever gas type you know, you're going to be using initially.
0: Okay. Now it's your favorite question from Kurt.
1: From Kurt Eaton here? Yeah. Yeah, this is a really cool question. Kurt's using an artisan fluid bed roaster from Coffee Crafters. Um, He's roasted on drum roasters before. He had some large-scale production that sounds like through a contract roaster done on a drum roaster. Kurt prefers the coffee on a fluid bed roaster. Why? Um, He talks about the coffee tasting, let me find it here in his question, but brighter and more distinct. And, you know, one of my favorite sort of quiet time things to do is to go look at the web pages of various coffee roasting companies. And it's so cool when you find a company that's like a diehard fluid bed roasting is part of their company brand, or roasting on some vintage 100 year old drum roaster is key to their brand. There's a lot of claims made about the quality and the characteristics of the coffee. Um, I think that it's all bogus. I think that you can roast great coffee on any roasting machine if you have enough controls and that you can fool um, even really discerning tasters into thinking that coffee was roasted one way when in fact it was roasted on another machine. This was first proven to me by um, Justin Johnson, a great roaster. He actually recently passed away which is kind of sad, but some years ago, we were both involved with a casual coffee roasters group in the Northwest. Connie from Roast Magazine was kind of our supporter of this I, unofficially, but also she was a great convener. And you know, basically we would get together every couple of weeks, every couple of months, somebody would have a topic they wanted to explore. You know, I think I explored once cupping with customers Justin one time said, you know what? I want to explore the idea of fluid bed versus drum roasting. Mm -hmm. Justin's a super talented roaster. He really understood these machines. He was kind of a roaster for hire. He was a consultant roaster for a few companies. He had access to a Civets fluid bed roaster, kind of famous large-scale fluid bed roasters developed in Oregon. And he also had access to a vintage probot. There couldn't have been a better test. His test was super simple. You know, here we were a bunch of roasters, you know, folks that worked at Coffee Bean International, folks that worked for tiny third wave companies, Seattle, Washington. He just roasted three coffees. He roasted each coffee once on the fluid bed, once on the drum roaster. I I say once. He might have roasted them 200 times to pull this test off. But he presented us with one roast of each coffee from each machine, lined up, Three different coffees on one side of the table, three on the other. We t- cupped the coffees, basically said, okay, who thinks if the left side, you know, who thinks the left side of the table was roasted fluid bed? People raise their hand. Who thinks the right side was drum? People raise their hand. None of us could reliably guess which machine roasted which
0: coffee. Nice.
1: This has continued to be proven out. Rob Hoos and Ann Cooper have recently written an article that's in um, a recent issue of Roast Magazine of Can You Taste the Roasting Style or the Roasting Method? It wasn't quite as hardcore, Um, but I think it was equally valuable. They had a Loring roaster, a Dietrich roaster, and I think a ProBot or something. So, kind of the roasters that you think of as highly conductive, kind of lower airflow up to a Loring, which is in a lot of ways a fluid bed roaster turned mm-hmm. on Um, They basically would match roast profiles, kind of following the idea of modulation that Rob has talked about a lot, where you're matching drying time, you're roasting Maillard reaction, you're matching development time, you're matching roast color. They've triangulated these coffees. They've done it with roasters at SCA Expo at different coffee events. Same results. People can't reliably pick the roasting people. style.
0: What, what are the people? Are they professionals? Or are they professionals. Just... Okay.
1: These are people that, that are attending roasters' events, that are okay. attending SCA Expo. These are oh, no. pretty, I mean, we, we assume <laughs> that they're well-vetted tasters. But I think in the article, they talk about their protocol. And sometimes it's been more casual, sometimes more formal. But you can't taste the roasting style. I've... So I so I think um, you know one of the ways to answer this question would be when you are having you know your associate that has a drum roaster do some of your production work for you, Don't just cup those coffees kind of independently, like five cups of one roast, five cups of another, and decide that you like one roast versus the other. You might very well like the fluid bed roast, but triangulate them. Set up a rigorous test. Set up 12 sets of three coffees where some of the sets have two of the fluid bed, one of the drum roast, some have two of the drum, one of the fluid bed. Taste them yourself. Bring in others that are kind of experienced tasters. See how reliably you can pick out one roast versus another. You might surprise yourself when it's kind of blinded and it's really just a kind of hardcore discrimination test.
0: Wow, okay. Kurt, my opinion is different. Not not entirely. I mean, mm-hmm. I was roasting Amish coffee on Lorings for a long time. And I love Lorings. I mean, I think that roasting on Lorings is like driving a uh Ferrari. It's just beautiful, a lot of control, very comfy. But when I roasted the same coffees, we had just had some kind of like uh, emergency. I had to come to, to the lab here and roast uh, our coffee here. I don't know. giesen gave me a better result. And now it can be different reasons. It can be that I use the same kind of roast profile on both uh, roasters. So basically I don't adjust and that profile worked for me better on giesen because all my life, you know, I was roasting on drum roasters. The exception was when we started on each coffee and we went to Coro and roasted on Loring's. But you know, I would be interested to triangulate it myself because I really find that the mm. medium roasts, which I did on Loring's and light roasts, were muddled and kind of like weird. And I always blame poor William for his coffee. That the coffee sucks, man. We have to improve the quality on the farm. <laughs> William is the, my business partner, who is actually the farmer of these coffees. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, the more you roast, the less, you know, I think. <laughs> so I would, I would love to triangulate those when somebody else roast them, not me, that my, my roast style is out of the, of the game. And I would love to see, but I agree with you that, you know, you can have any roster, you can adjust it, you can work with it. You can basically create the profiles you want to, but you have to kind of like experiment with it. So, but my experience as a. I will not say amateur, but not the top roaster of the world, is that I prefer drum roasters.
1: And and I think I do too. That's, okay, that's, that's the go. short answer, despite all of these tests. But it comes down to a personal preference on what machine am I most comfortable using and confident using. Mm-hmm. It's the same advice when I have a student or a client that's looking to upgrade a machine. They say, wow, what kind of roasting machine should I buy? Or it's their very first roasting machine that they're purchasing. Um, I don't know, would you just ask me without ever having driven a bunch of cars which new car you should go buy? I'm mm-hmm. going mean, I give this example all the time. Any former students will just have to bear with me telling the story again. Like, a Toyota Corolla is a great car. A Mercedes S-Class is a great car. A Tesla is a great car. Which do you prefer driving? I can't answer that question for you. So you just have to get your hands on them, taste coffee from them, roast coffees yourself on them. And, you know, it sounds like, Kurt, you really like roasting on a fluid bed machine. Mm-hmm. There's very large fluid bed roasters out there. I don't know what size you're looking to scale, but you can find civets fluid bed machines that will roast 300 pounds in a batch. And, you know, Newhouse Neotech that has kind of taken on that technology offers fluid bed machines in a bunch of different sizes. So I encourage you to check them out.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And it's your style. So it's you. You I think, always think that every business has to have you in it, and if that's your style, that's perfect and by the way, uh, just to correct when we also we don't know what roast you do like because when we did dark roast for an coffee, dark roast actually on on lowering are much better than geese, and they taste burned, but on lowering, you get really that nice perfuminess of the dark roast what you know people look for, so again, depends also on a roast degree i guess
1: yeah i'm I'm sure different coffees are gonna shine in different formats,
0: right. I hope we did not confuse you too much. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, next question uh, by Dan from Punto Fino is Does uh, adjusting airflow through a roast have a significant impact on the roast versus constant airflow? I roast on hooky.
1: Cool. And you have roasted on a hooky, Valerian.
0: i still roasting on hooky.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. It's for sale. That's what I was going to say. I think you're trying to sell it. I didn't know if you had or not. Um, so, I mean, my, my answer to this is yes, 100%, absolutely. The more complicated answer is you have a lot of variables at your disposal as a coffee roaster to sort of play with a lot of levers to manipulate flavor, starting with roast color, thinking about development time, thinking about different the amount of time you're spending at different stages of the roast. Those are gonna pay the biggest dividends but once you're sort of matching those, once you find a profile that you love, if you change the airflow and roast the same coffee at a high airflow versus a low airflow, or if you roast the coffee with high airflow in the beginning and low airflow at the end, it's going to change the characteristics of the coffee. Unfortunately, it's not like a if this, then that answer. We've done some testing with this. Um, the Giesen roasters have a very sophisticated way of mm-hmm. managing airflow with an air pressure sensor, so that as I change the pascals of air pressure in the drum, the software manipulates the fan speed. So airflow in that case really becomes a profiling tool. Similar if you have a magna helix attached to the damper of your roaster the way that some San Franciscans do. Um, And when we've tested this, you can look at the blog at um, bootcoffee.com. We have some blog posts about this. The results are inconclusive. Some coffees, we had great results from higher airflow at the end. Other coffees, the results weren't so good. Hookie specific, uh, Valerian? I don't know.
0: Oh, no, I, I'm totally with you. I never, you know, Um on Hookie, I actually have, okay, yeah. now I say something people will hate me for. I have one roast profile, which I like, and I use that all the time, almost with every coffee. There are a few exceptions, like geisha roast, a bit differently, but, you know. Italian roast? <laughs> No, actually, you know what, um, when I, I had to do once because I traded my coffee for tomatoes, Uh, there's a dude who's growing tomatoes, they are amazing. You're the
1: best gigger and hustler that I know, Valerian. He might sound modest here, but this guy is a hustler (laughs) of the highest magnitude.
0: If you get tomatoes, like he makes, like he grows. You will do anything for that. Seriously, like if you will, (laughs) you would climb trees. Anyhow, so I was roasting. He liked dark roast. I was doing dark roast, and here's a fun fact: that like I roast in my garage, so I did the dark roast. Opened all the garage doors, everything, and you know after roast it was cooling. I went up, had dinner with my family, came back. The garage still smelled like urine. Have you ever experienced that? If you roast dark roast, it's kind of like a uric smelling.
1: Funny, I think of the lactic smell, right? The, like the sour milk okay. characteristic. I haven't thought of the urine smell. Like you're going to ruin roasting coffee's dark for me. I have some I dark, dark roast, roast to do for a client. I do dark roasts,
0: man. No, no, it's just like in that. Anyhow, so the tip for hooky, what I do is actually around the A point or, you know, just before first crack, I crank up the airflow. And it's a practical reason, not really flavor reason. And so I want to get rid of as much chaff as possible. You have to adjust the heat, you know, because if you are on low heat already and you crank up the airflow, hooky starts to lose temperature. So you have to and be many careful. many
1: roasters will do this, right? If right. If you increase the airflow, especially at the end of a roast with a low burner, you're going to suck all that heat out. Mm-hmm. If you increase the airflow early in the roast with a big burner, boom, your rate of rise is going to explode and take
0: off. I have a first-generation hooky. I don't know if they changed those things on that, but, you know, this was for me, like many times you end up with a coffee has a lot of chaff, which personally I don't really care for, but if I give it as a present to someone, you know, they're like, oh, what's this? Where does it come from? It's like, right. oh, it's a chaff. You know, whatever.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, my last comment on this, Dan, is that there is a method of roasting. Um, there was a former employee here at Boot Coffee some years ago, Steve Azell, and um I had lunch with him a few months ago, and he reminded me of this roasting method called aroma roasting, where the idea is, especially for a dark roasted coffee, at the end of the roast, when you're generating all of the smoke, you really close down the airflow, and you let the momentum carry through um, to the end of the roast. But by choking down the airflow and trapping that smoke, you're creating those smoky aromatics that so many dark roast lovers are seeking. so yeah, it was kind of nice for him to remind me of that. And it just came to mind as we were talking about that, because that might be the most dramatic way to use airflow to influence flavor in your coffee.
0: So now I know On we have the Probat UEG 22 from, I think it's 1960 when it was produced. And there is this, the, the, when it has the damper, the, uh, damper, what do you call it? The damper. Damper, yep. there a, there's a level called Aroma. I was like, what the heck is that
1: all <laughs> about? yeah 100 percent. i'm sure it's it's kind of an old school technique but a good one for yeah. creating those types of coffees which we can all admit they sell really well
0: yeah all right that's all the questions we have about roasting today
1: yeah those are great questions everybody keep those coming um they're so, really fun for us to think about and to you know consider maybe concepts in a new way so Really fun.
0: So how they should send us questions. So there are two ways. One, they visit bootcoffee.com and to contact form, they will reach you.
1: Yep. They'll come to me directly and we'll add them to the queue. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you have more sort of specific questions, things outside of the realm of a podcast, I'm always happy to provide some advice. Um, So be in touch.
0: Other way is coffee is dot me. Those questions go to me but we always put them in one pool. So it's up to you guys what whatever you prefer. Uh, our wine is gone.
1: It must be time to go home, have yeah. dinner.
0: Yeah, my Ooh, wife is missing me. Probably
1: wine before dinner. Yeah, she's missing me too. Many house guests, the house is quiet tonight, quiet night, it'll
0: be great. Well, we have to do some podcast BS, you know, about, oh, leave us reviews and stuff, or should we just skip that today?
1: Yeah, I think we just skip
0: it. Okay, so next time.
1: I feel good about what we did. I don't need that validation.
0: Okay, all right, but we want your questions for sure. If you have good wine, let us know or just... If you have
1: great coffees, let us know. Right? We're happy to drink your wine and talk about it. We're happy to drink your coffee and talk
0: about it. We take even tomatoes.
1: (laughs) Of course, tomatoes, anytime.
0: All right, so wrap. Bye, see you next time.
1: Bye-bye.